You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. Gracious Father, for for this day which you've made and your mercies renewed each morning, even amidst the rain and, and all else, um, thank you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for your word, especially, which, which, uh, which turns our hearts to you. Um, be with us now and speak. Uh, let your living word uh, be active on us as it falls on our ear, doing the work which you've given it to do. Um, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Starting a series. Let me go ahead and pass these out. If you would, just kind of take one and pass it back and around. Um, Stella, thank you. Um, uh, the beginning of a series, something I've had in mind to do for a while, um, that I've never really done before. It's a little bit unusual. Uh, uh, trying to write a little bit uh, and write short summaries on uh, just all sorts of things. Um, for a couple of years now, I've had this in my mind and had a working name called Hot Sheets. I don't know where that came up, but I was calling him. I was like, I need to put that into a hot sheet. Um, uh, just different things from different uh, uh Theological topics, topics related to church, mostly about salvation and faith. Just to clarify what words mean, um, why we say what we say, and the way that we say it, when we say it. Uh, uh, some ways to, to give some anchor point um, just for this particular church, this part of the body of Christ, the Advent. What it means when the Advent says, you know, the gospel, for instance, which we talk about all the time. Um, what does that mean? That's a really good question because um, there's not all, uh, there's not a common understanding in every instance about what exactly that means. What is the Bible? What is the Bible not? Um, what do we mean when we talk about discipleship or vocation or sanctification, for instance? So that's what I'm hoping to do. Um, somewhat of a of a, of, a, of a big exercise, at least for me, because there's some, some more preparation than, than I'm used to, but uh, something I've been working on for a few weeks now, and, and I'm not by any means up to the end of the series already, but trying to work ahead some. Uh, but for this, um, I thought, well, it'd probably be better if I just throw it into a class. Um, that way it keeps me a little bit accountable, so if I'm staying ahead, I'll be doing that. And I also love feedback. I have no real idea about where all this is going, um, what's going to happen with all these words that are going to be on pages at the end of the day. Uh, uh, at least significantly, I hope it'll be a benefit to the staff, current and future staff, because we're hiring staff, that sort of thing. And we're trying to say, well, this is what, this is kind of who we are, whether the whole thing or just like, here's a sheet on the gospel. Um, what do you think? And we can use that as a dinner topic at, at uh, you know, sometime we're interviewing somebody. Um, uh, so, I'd love feedback, in other words. And these classes, if you're interested, uh, somewhat unusually, although every class, I hope, is um, will stand on its own, there's also going to be a certain amount that builds on it. So, if you're interested in what amounts to a, uh, a crash course in certain theological topics, which will have some sense of sequence, like I think before you can really say what sanctification is, you need to have an idea of what the living and active Word of God is, in the life of a Christian where you account for sin. So you've got to talk about sin. What does it mean to be a Christian? What is sin like in the life of a Christian? What does the Word of God do on a non-Christian? What does it do on a Christian? Is there a difference? Is there not a difference? And then you begin to get to the words of sanctification and discipleship and vocation and that sort of thing. So there is a certain sequence that's involved if you're interested 
come on and I'll see what we can do. Um, if you're not, won't offend me at all, but that's what I'm hoping to do for the next eight or so weeks. Kind of take us, I think, to the week after Easter is what I have in mind. Um, so that's the idea. Um, if you want to leave now, I will not be offended because it's a little bit different than most. Um, there you go. So a little bit different than most of the classes that I teach, but hopefully not too much. Um, and I don't have, this is, these are my notes for today because I've already given you five pages. <laughs> so I'm just going to kind of go through and we're going to see where we go. So thoughts or questions? Um, I do hope to make this very interactive, uh, but we'll see how much that can happen. Okay. Um, so we're starting, and there's different ways we can start this. Um, somewhere, I think it's in that place where it's called the proper subject of theology. Uh, and what I'm not going to do is sort of give them my, the, you know, these are all just, what, I'm coming at it from a certain way. Um, there are going to be other people who come at it from different ways. John Calvin, for instance, would say the starting point for theology is, as you might guess, God. <laughs> The study of God, theosology, you know, the study of or the words about God. Um, that's not where I think we're starting. So here I am right at the beginning. I know there's all this hubris. It's like, so Gil Cracky is disagreeing with John Calvin. Um, uh, but the, we start not in the abstract and in the high planes of who is God, where you peer into necessarily some form of speculation, but something much more earthed in terms of our experience. Uh, and we begin with the topic of sin. Um, what is sin? And what is sin generally? Because it's a simple question in some ways. It's not so simple in others. Um, and then we'll get to, as a second topic, um, what's the continuing nature of sin? And then even if we, we'll see what, how much time we have to get into the proper subject of theology and try to get to the question of what do we mean when we talk about the heart, when the Bible talks about the heart. Um, uh, I did a quick search. And I think just in the ESVs, I'm on ESV online and type in heart, I think there's like 896 instances of the word heart. Now, they're all going to be used in different ways, but it's a big topic, and I don't think we appreciate um, all the time what we mean when we talk about sin. Hey, how are you? So, um, there's some handouts somewhere that y'all might find helpful. Here, Mel. Um, uh, yes? Yeah? So, why are you beginning with sin and not who God is? Yeah. Um, to build it from the ground up, from the top down, put it that way. Because um, if we start peering into God, God the Creator, God omnipotent, God the holy, which leads to we are not. Well, we're going to get there really quickly because when you start talking about <laughs> sin, um, you start to recognize that if there's a bar, if there is a a uh, uh, a measuring rod, a plumb line that tells me what I am and am not, very quickly. You're going to find out who's the author of this plumb line, who's hanging the plumb line, who's the author of the law, which is the word of God that is going to diagnose my condition, and that being sin. But we're starting with this place of the sinning human. That's you, that's me, and that's the condition of everyone since Adam. Can I ask a question? Of course. Yep, yeah, this is great. We say this every Sunday. Yes. Heart is mentioned at least seven times. I might In, have missed it. Indeed, indeed. How does all that that we're going to talk about? How does what does it mean in here? I hope it means everything. Yes, yes. I'll give you a strong <laughs> hint. Um, thank you. Uh, when I say what is you know what is the advent? What you know what does it mean for the advent to be the advent? A step back at that is we're going to ask what does it mean for the advent 
as a church in the Episcopal Diocese of Alabama and Anglican Communion who stands on the shoulders of people going all the way back to Thomas Cramner, the 16th century reformer who, um, who, uh, who wrote the Book of Common Prayer. So those words, which are in there at least seven times, uh, he is what you would call an affective theologian. There's a big word, affect, emotion, more than that. He's always wanting to ask the same question. What does it mean when the Bible keeps talking about the heart? So Anglicanism, as a contribution in Christendom, is a heart-centered expression of the faith given to us as a gift. We're always going to want to say, what does it mean when we say we most heartily thank thee? Is that just sort of an happenstantial, almost incidental word? Or is there something that's actually much more indicative there when we slow down and we think about we heartily thank Thee um, uh, that Thou dost feed us in these holy mysteries. For Use one example. Um, so you're right in the middle of it. And that's going to be all the way. I think the last one I'm going to talk about is what does it mean to be Anglicanism. So open our hearts. Um, incline our hearts to keep Thy law. Yeah. Yep, yep. So heart-centered. Um, Thomas Cramner's Theology of the Heart. The Church of the Advents, Theology of the Heart. Understanding of the Heart. Um, so, good question. I mean, I'm trying to set up. It's big picture stuff. I mean, we're going to be zooming in and zooming out, lots of levels. But let's talk about sin for a little bit. When I say sin, let's uh, let's, let's inter- keep interacting. What what comes to mind? Um, let me talk about sin. Just the words. Three three little letters. Sin. Self. Okay. So personal. It's good. What's that? Pride. 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 Yep. Being your own God, some sort of a theological construct. Um, anybody else? How is it sometimes going to be commonly used? Somebody? Brokenness. Brokenness. Death. Death. Falling short. Bondage. Is that what I heard? Falling short. Falling short. That's good. So yeah, somebody didn't say was you know, sort of the, the the multisyllabic use of the word sin. You know, where you can talk about you know a preacher. Harping on sin. Uh, there's lots of ways to think about sin. Um, let's just hammer it down to three or four. Um, sin can be one or all of these things um, at the same time. Uh, an individual act, you know, that's the, the preacher, as it were, the Elmer Gantry kind of preacher who's talking about sins, you know, footloose, you know, going back to my teenagerdom where it's a sin to drink and, and dance and hang around with those who do that kind of stuff. Uh, which it's not, obviously. Um, uh, uh, so there's the actions. It can be a condition. Um, uh, the condition of each one of us from the fall forward, from the time that Adam and Eve ate the apple, um, when now sin reigns. And somehow, when the Bible speaks of being in bondage to this power, this condition, that we can't not not be there, that's another way to think about it. As an extension of that, you can think about being original. Um, so we hear the word original sin. You know, this is just building blocks. We need to get all this stuff straight. Does that mean it's the first sin? Um, going back to the time where there was actually a time in the creation of God, uh, in God's creation, where uh, uh, mankind, um, Adam and Eve, were able not to sin or able to sin. Uh, and there was the time where they were on that precipice and that somehow that changed and where the original sin was the first sin. And so original is in the instance of first. Well, that's true. I think the better. So that's, that's part of what we mean when we say original sin. But more than that, 
now, after the fall, big fancy word, post-lapsarian, just means after the lapse, the fall of Adam and Eve, uh, sin is more original, as in it's in our DNA. As David says quite starkly in his confession to God in Psalm 51, that in uh, my mother's womb, I was conceived in sin, meaning from the very beginning, when we were just two cells uh, in, a, in a very simple zygote, we're already sinful, which is crazy because we haven't acted, but you see how we betray ourselves, and we'll get a lot of pushback there when you start to think that sin, how can there be a sinner when the baby's not even born yet? But it's the condition, the bondage, the power that is over us from the very beginning where as soon as a baby is even conceived, it is subject to death and suffering, um, which is a crazy thing to think about. But this is what we think about when we think about sin. And then the principalities and powers in which all of creation uh, is groaning under the weight of sin. That's the fourth way that we can sometimes think about sin, which Romans 8, in that great transition point in Paul's letter, begins to consider, where it speaks of of all of creation waiting, as in the pains of childbirth, for the revelation of the sons of God, um, uh, and then waiting and groaning again under the weight uh, of it being subjected to futility. All this is describing the physical idea of just the pressure, the gravity, the grief. The word grief is connected to the word gravity, gravis, heaviness. The weight of sin is heavy on us individually, but also as a creation. And all of creation, the cosmos, is waiting for redemption, for the revelation of the sons of God. So sin is both very myopic, and it's what I did, or it's what I didn't do. It's what I said, and it's what I didn't say, as we say in our confession. But it's also massively cosmic, um, that all of creation is groaning under this heaviness and this weight. And we have to hold all that at once when we think about sin, and we start there. We start with the bad news, as it were. Um, we start with need. Now, we're going to find out later how we recognize that we, in fact, have need, what we might call the diagnosis, but we have to start in this place of what is sin. And it's one of those things, and it's all those things. And if it's not any of those things, if, it's ever em if one of those things is emphasized at the expense of the other, ramifications happen. So, hey, pause. Comments or questions? So, so the thing I love about the Adam and Eve story is you know, whoever wrote Genesis is grappling with the human condition. And what they see is that we doubt the goodness of God. And that's why they said, right, well, surely it mean that. So is every command from God meant for our goodness, for our... Mm. For our <laughs> the right word, but for our betterment, mm -hmm. and and they thought it wasn't. Mm -hmm. right? And so, and you know, when the guy buried the one talent in the ground, mm -hmm. and Jesus was mad at him. God was mad at him because he said, "You thought I was a hard man." And we know that God's every command, direction, word for us is only for our good. Then we actually have some hope of of being better. Hmm. But when we look at God and we question whether he's for us 100% and we question whether, you know, I mean, we want to make our own decisions and, and make choices about what's best for us. 
I mean, I think that's the main reason he sent Christ. Mm. He has to die on the cross, but also to say, I'm for you 100%. Yep. Um, so whatever I'm telling you is for your betterment. Yep. Yep. Um, your ultimate betterment. Your ultimate betterment. Even though, yeah. Yeah. You're getting ahead of the story slightly, but you're exactly right. So, yeah, so, be a lot next week. So, that's good. No, 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 no. Apologies. This is good. Because it's all tied up. I mean, we start at the beginning, and you have to linearly work your way to the end, but the end is not separate from the beginning. And you can't you can't do that. So in the first paragraph I put two um, statements and I didn't I'm not I'm not citing all sorts of of, uh, of material and since what's lacking in this. Um, but I didn't make this stuff up. Um, but where the church has gotten things wrong in history, almost always. I wanted to say always, but I thought no, I need to leave myself a little bit of wiggle room there. Um, but I would say 90% of the time, an inadequate view of sin is to blame. So it's that big a deal. And then secondly, uh, I think this is a really great statement. I didn't make it up, that's why I can say that. Um, if I asked some of the people in the room who were kind of historians and into the Reformation and all that stuff, what's the biggest, of course you've read ahead, <laughs> what's the biggest contribution to the Reformation? You would say, I would have said, Something like justification by faith alone, or more specifically, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, mediated to the word of God alone, sola scriptura, to the glory of God alone. So you get all the solas, the Reformation solas there. Uh, and that's all true, but what the, the real reorientation that was happening at the Reformation, when the church of God was reformed by God um, through his living word, was to recover a biblical understanding of sin. And so that's again why we start there. If if the church is you and me, and so we're talking about the Reformation, we're talking about us ourselves being reformed again and again and again every day around the living Word of God, it starts by being apprehended again with the truthfulness of what the Bible describes as sin. The personal sin the cosmic sin, the original sin, the bondage to sin, this power which is over me. So somebody like Richard Hayes, who's a moral theologian, um, teaches at Duke. This is the last paragraph there. He then comes up with one implication that I'd like to highlight. Um, I'll even read this part. One implication of this understanding is that we should be wary of what sometimes passes for common sense. So this is how it kind of plays out in, in real life. As sin is common to each of us, we are, or should be, suspicious of our natural and common sense. Common sense. Well, it just makes sense that I can't be held responsible for my dreams, right? I mean, I didn't choose to dream about that. Um, uh, I should not be held responsible for the way I like grapes, but I don't like cauliflower. I mean, I can't be held responsible for that. That's just who I am. I mean, I was made that way. This is kind of what's being brought into question here. Um, Richard Hayes combats the apparently, quote, common sense assumption that only freely chosen acts are morally culpable. Quite the reverse. The very nature of sin is that it is not freely chosen. That is what it means to live in the flesh in a fallen creation. We are in bondage to sin, but still accountable to God's righteous judgment of our actions. And this is our theological Anthropology. Just want to introduce a word that's going to be used again later. Our anthropology, anthropos. Um, you know, just the, what does it mean to be a human being? Um, yeah. When it says we're not responsible sometimes for 
You can't resist sin. We can't not not sin. Um, but still accountable. But are still accountable. So here we are. <laughs> so I can't not not sin, and yet I'm still being held responsible for something that I can't not not do. And that offends us. Because if I didn't choose it, then how can I be held responsible for it? It wasn't me. And what is it? Uh, Roger Rabbit? What's the woman's name? Um, I'm not a bad person. I'm just drawn that way. You know, that's the root of it. That's how it gets drawn out. Who's Jessica Rabbit? She said, "I'm not a bad person. I'm just drawn that way. I can't help myself. I'm just drawn this way." Um, Cain and Abel, right here in the middle. Um, uh, so this is where it seems simple, but you can see it gets very quick. Where you start talking about agency and are we free? And if you're hearing the echoes of, so is there free choice or you know bound will? All the th- things get real complicated real fast. You got to get the ABCs clean and clear at the very beginning. Um, so that's what I want to say about sin. That's probably enough anyway, because um, if we're going to get to the heart. Or at least want to go there. You can read this, digest it, disagree with me. Um, feedback, if you think I think you need to say something else about this, I would appreciate some of those comments. Um, but that's the sin part. Um, and even our uh, our own articles, the 39 articles of religion, um, which are in the back of the prayer book and kind of the, the, the Anglican confession, um, talk about this infection of nature, which is original to us. Um, that's going to be something that we're going to hit here in the next part as well. So, what is the continuing nature of sin? If that's sin, when I talk about continuing nature of sin, there are thoughts that in some ways make sense. But remember, we're suspicious of common sense. Um, That if I was this, but I'm now that, uh, after God comes into my life, um, after the grace of God invades my life, uh, through faith, uh, or by, by grace, through faith, however you want to describe it, what about sin? Is it still present? Am I somehow less sinful? Um, am, I, uh, uh, am I different? Um, what, what happens to me either externally uh, or you could even say internally? Big fancy word of ontologically, which is just the big philosophical phrase of the core of who I am and my very being, so we're about to get to heart. Uh, do, am I different? Am I qualitatively, is the quality of Gilcracky different? now that I am a Christian than the time when I wasn't, if I could remember that. That's going to be the question here about sin and its continuing nature. Um, a theological word, just got to introduce it, is called regeneration. Um, after regeneration, um, if you, uh, after conversion or gen- regeneration, are you in a different place? Article 9 says, uh, this infection of nature doth remain, yea, in them that are regenerated. It's a very simple statement, and it gives us at least the Anglican, the classical Anglican answer, that no. Um, uh, once you're regenerated, you aren't sort of erased of sin. Etch-a-sketch doesn't happen, and you aren't shaken, and that somehow now it's given back to you and says, don't screw up, because now you got a clean slate. There's the tabula rasa. Um, uh, go forth and now choose the good and refuse the evil. That's the question especially at that period, but I think it's a timeless question. Um, After regeneration, are we shaken like an Etch-a-Sketch and we're given a clean slate in the sense, in the specific sense that we now have, um, that we're free moral agents, to put that back into Richard Hayes' language. Um, Now I can choose 
what I want to do, and I'm only held responsible for those good choices. So that's the that's the beginning. That's the contours of the question. Comments on that? I don't want to lose people on this part. Um, well, yeah. uh, Schofield called the Ten Commandments the deathful tables. Hmm. And if we live, well, for me anyway, if I live with this idea that um, regenerate means that uh, I'm now able to avoid sin, I mean, it's it's deathful because you're continually uh, not just repenting but condemning yourself for bad decisions. Hmm. And so what this says, and the most important thing I ever learned, I mean, the thing that sets the Advent apart <clears throat> from most churches is Seymour used to see the God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was so liberating when I got that. Mm-hmm. I started becoming something of a better person once I actually realized that it was... Because when you keep looking at your sin and wanting to gain freedom from it and reflecting on it, it just gets worse. And there was it was so freeing to hear Luther say, <laughs> you know, you're going to be that way to you die. Yeah. Wow. yeah. It was just, I don't know. Yep. It's good. But this is the category. We're getting there. Yep. Where they say, well, you're a Christian now, so just get it right. Yep. You know, 101, you got in the door. Now yeah. 201, 301, 401, yeah. it's going to be a different economy, yeah. metric, grading system, expectation, yeah. power, all those things. Yeah. yeah. So, a little bit of um, you know, sort of historicity here. Um, St. Augustine, Doctor of Grace, you know, he, he got this part wrong. I mean, this is another place where the Reformation turned. I even gave you some Latin if you wanted to have that down there in the bottom. And this dark room, I'm getting old enough now, that's getting harder to read. Um, uh, down there in number three, Augustine described the four states of human nature in relation to sin. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were able to sin or able not to sin. So they had choice. They had a free will because we're gonna, we gotta, when we're talking about this, we have to talk about what does the will mean. Here's the um, here's the punchline. We talk about the will, and you're asking, is it free or is it bound? We're not talking about choice. So the will is not choice. The will is something more like that level in us, just above the heart that you might describe, you know, where you have an urge, lust, covetousness a desire, an urge, a disposition, an attitude, your orientation towards something, that you got to have chocolate cake. I just, every time I hear the word dessert, at the end of it, it's like, that's all I can think about. And I've got to sort of finish the meal by having that. And I might be able to choose not to eat it, but I'm not free from the urge and the desire because I'm fixed on this idea of cheesecake because I can't not not think about cheesecake. That's the will, to use a silly example. Um... So, before the fall, something like free will actually existed. Adam and Eve were able to sin or able not to sin. After the fall, um, but before regeneration, uh, Augustine would say that man was unable not to sin. But then after regeneration, and this was the hinge point of, uh, of Luther's theological breakthrough, if you want to call it that, uh, he, he, he diverted from Augustine on this point. After regeneration, uh, Augustine said that uh, the regenerate Christian was able not to sin. They were able to choose the good and move forward at the level of the will. Uh, And then in our glorified state, this is what we're all longing for, we're unable to sin. So you can see how it all sort of lines up. Able to sin, able not to sin. Unable not to sin. 
somewhere in the middle. That's where Luther would just leave it here. And then our glorified statement, we're unable to sin. And what a glorious time that'll be. We could try all we want to sin, to have at the level of the will something that's uh, where I'm fixated on, on, on myself again. And in glory, I won't be able to do it. Because all I'll be able to do is be enraptured in the glory of God. That is good news. But in the meanwhile, we're stuck. And we're asking the question, are we able not to sin, or are we bound to sin? Um, that's the question for Christians. And where, where Luther turned it and he said, Augustine, with all respect, is wrong on this point. And it was around this fancy word called concupiscence, if you do some reading and all that. Forsyth, did you want to ask a question? Yeah, and we might get to this. Where do you think conviction falls in sin? Because some people convict of things and other people aren't. Correct. Especially you mentioned before you were a Christian and then once you're a Yep, yep. Um, that's going to be through the word of the law, which is a living and active word of God. Um, and then it's going to be part of the primary aspect of sanctification, in fact. Um, so that's coming up. Yes. Good question. See, this is where it all sort of ties up. That's like week six you when you start to get there. But you got to get all this right and start asking those questions. And maybe this question is kind of weird, but I'll, I'll never forget taking this disciple class at the Methodist Church, and they said all sin is equal. Like whether you murdered somebody or something I would call a lesser sin, and I still struggle with that. I don't know. Yeah. Because it separates you from God. Right. Yeah. But so it also causes some sins cause bigger ramifications sure, sure. than others, and maybe that's not what they were saying. Maybe they were just trying to say, "I do believe it all separates you from God," but I don't even know if you go into that. I don't know yeah. If some sins work. Yeah. Sins. I don't even know if that's a if it's a moot point. Yeah, that's no, not a moot point. I might go into it. Um, two ways of answering that, um, from our perspective and from the perspective of God. Um, from our perspective, of course, you could call it the say gradations of sin. In what way? Consequences and ramifications. Um, my my covetousness stays very well hidden, thank you very much. You think I'm a great guy. <laughs> um, oh, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Uh, so, humanly speaking, there's all sorts of gradations of sin. Um, murder and adultery and strife and things such as these where it's very public and visible and it affects society and interpersonal relationships and there are massive consequences that go down for generations or for countries and all that absolutely 100 um, percent but this is the peculiar thing when there's about six instances in the scripture where and jesus has about three or four of them he's got more but then paul has it and peter has one i think james has one where it's these lists and all sorts of things are like just mentioned one after another and it seems like they're completely disproportionate. He talks about sexual immorality and murder and being disobedient to your parents and, and, and theft and burglary and you're like, wait a minute, like not taking the trash out is the same thing as, you know, sexual, you know, and he's like, and, and for Paul, from the perspective of God, the dropper of the plumb line, it's like you're bent on yourself can't remember who said that over there. It was Umel. Um, uh, and if if anything that separates you from God, uh, even something so simple as I really want a new iPhone. I, 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 I've got an iPhone 4, and I think I don't need a new one. I just need a refurbished 8. 
No, that's not so bad, right? I mean, surely that's okay. Well, from another perspective, if it's drawing you from God, there you are. Isn't that crazy to think that that's sinful when you're thinking about um, Pol Pot? Uh, but here we are, trying to say, what is sin? And it helps some ways to think about, in glory, unable not to, unable to sin, because we won't be able to think about anything. Even thought itself is the wrong word. We'll be so enraptured in the glory of God that it will be the only thing on our hearts, on our lips, in our minds. Um, it's all there is. No iPhones, no, uh, uh, no, no lust, no covetousness for, for a thing, for a person, for a place, for a time that is lost, no heartache, no nostalgia. It's simple presence. And that is good news. Well, and I think the basis of all that is too. I'm getting my needs met from the side. Yep, that's right. That's right. I mean, that makes it easier even to see that, oh, this is going to make my life better. Yep. Where I'm looking there instead of to him. Hey, that helps. Yeah, Mel. Augustine means able not to sin. That just throws out grace. You're under the law again. Or did he mean I'm not able to sin because I'm forgiven by God? When he sees me, he sees the Son. More the first. Um. So, yeah, we'll do this and we'll stop. Um, I had no illusions of getting through everything. Um, uh, and I hope this is helpful. I don't know if it is or not, but going to look at building blocks as we get to other questions. So there's this word called concupiscence. Um, uh, it's, it's still in the articles. Concupiscia is Latin and it still runs around there. Sometimes it's not translated because it doesn't exactly come around. It doesn't translate well into English. No other word. But it has something to do with that level of the will where there's this this affection or desire, which sometimes translated as a lust, which is both good and bad because we, we normally associate lust strictly in the sexual sense. But the lust for a thing, for a time, for a person, for an experience, something that was lost, something that was never had, anything where you have to have it. So you can lust after cheesecake. You can lust for a woman. You can lust for a man. You can lust for peace. You can have this concupiscentia for... Uh, for something. That's the question. Um, able not to sin, that you would be free from that because he wanted to say that's not the question, Augustine. And the church built after this where concupiscence was what they called the tender for sin, meaning that level of desire, tender like for a fire. So you get, it's raining and all that stuff, but you've got dry wood that's really small, the shavings and some cotton balls, and it's, it's ready. You're going to be able to, all it takes is a little bit of a spark, a little bit of a flame, but an external agent, i.e. your choice, to ignite that. Um, concupiscence was the tender for sin. That's the phrase they had, they used, because they had a, a, a visceral image that would have meant something to them. Um, but it's not sin in itself. It can be ignited very quickly, and then suddenly it can, it can go to flame in a, in a minute, in a second. But it was still... Uh, after confession, first, actually, first sanctification, once you got yourself right and then you confessed, uh, then you had the etch a sketch and you were able not to sin. So choose well. And that's what drove Luther nuts. Jesus one, you know, it's where it comes out to the Reformation, where he was then spinning around saying, I can't see, as I'm reading the New Testament for the first time, uh, I can't see how my inward disposition is not in and of itself sin. 
and his, his, his church fathers, the Augustinian order, were saying, like, no, that's not sin, as long as you don't act on it. And Luther's like, no, I can't see that. You don't know the inside of my heart. Let me confess to you. And so he confessed for three days straight. <laughs> and they're like, would you please do something bad so you can actually have something to confess to me? That's what his, his father figure came back to him. So that's the question. And that was Augustine's understanding that at the level of the will, this was the late Augustine, um, at the level of the will, we were able to choose the good and refuse the evil. And that's a biblical phrase. That's why I keep saying that. Um, uh, but Luther and then subsequent thought in the church, and this is the Advent being the Advent, um, had a different sense of things. So, so I think some do and some don't. I don't know that for sure. I think probably official Catholic dogma probably still holds that. Um, but it's, uh, it's probably talked differently. But I'm not positive of that. I'm not sure. Jill, can I ask you? Yeah, Rick. I doubt it. So. Probably are. All right. I sometimes think a lot about how these sort of theological concepts play themselves out of practical realities. So some I'm kind of hung up on. Yeah, good. Are you saying that the biological reality of like a person being born was different before the fall in terms of like we were born or conceived in a different way where we were not subject to sin? Pre-sin? Yeah. Well, of course, I mean, th- there wasn't anybody that was born before the fall. Um, Adam and Eve and then yeah, all that. But, but yeah. theoretically, you would say, yes, they didn't have any belly buttons and they didn't have any sin. Um that's supposed to be funny, but nobody laughs. Um, well, I mean, I guess is that the way we were designed? Yeah, good question. Um, yes. You know, I wouldn't die on that grenade. But yes, we're designed for ultimate freedom in glory. And that's where we're heading back to. And you could say that. I think that's probably fair. I do nothing without the Father. Say it again. I do nothing without the Father. Yes. Who is alike in us in every way save one. Jesus in this that you're talking about? Uh, he alone is without sin. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. He does nothing without the Father. Amen. God made, and then, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's grace, and that'll be week four, I think, something else like that. Yeah, Charlie. Why in the great confession do we say by walking henceforth in His ways all the ways of our lives? You know why? Yep. Doesn't that suggest the transformation? Uh, grateful love um, is produced from God's gracious love. That's going to be the phrase that I'm borrowing from somebody else uh, uh, to describe Thomas Cramner's theology. That now, as the left hand is not aware of what the right hand is doing, that's going to be the sanctified life. We walk forth uh, in Thy ways um, free. Um, uh, and when the left hand really doesn't know what the right hand is doing, it, there's actual freedom. And I can see it in you, but you can't see it in yourself. Um, the church can see how the regenerate Christian looks different, smells different, is different. But from the inside out, our confession echoes Apostle Paul, wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me from the sack of bones? You know, I am the chief of sinners. I am the worst of the lot. You know, John Harper used to say, the only good things I've ever done are those I'm not aware of. Absolutely, 100% right. 100% right. Um, 100% right. And then as soon as you tell me about them, well, shoot. <laughs> because now I'm proud, and here we go. So, um, but you also, when you get told about them, you're shocked. You're shocked that God's been using them yep. that way. Yep. I mean, that's, 
Amazing. That is grace. So, so let me hit pause. So y'all go to church. Um, I hope this is helpful. Um, I don't know if it is. It's a little bit like a, a lay academy of theology, perhaps, or something else like that. We'll build on this each week. Read the the pages if you're so inclined. You know, love to have any feedback. And next week we'll look at um because I am going to try to stay on track. How far, however far we get. Um, I wish we'd gotten to the heart. Uh, the the word of God, living and active and breathed out, as it says in Hebrews and Second Timothy. What does that mean? We'll look at law. We'll look at gospel. What the gospel is. What it is not. I think that's important. Um, and uh, uh, and if it's living. How does it begin? How do we begin to make sense, Charlie? Your question to think about this lively faith, which is a gift, so that no man may boast that we have as we then live in uh, in the world. That'll be the beginning of it, where we can get to go out in freedom. So let me pray, Father. Um, take these feeble words and uh, and use them uh, as you would see fit. Help, Lord, uh, and let this be helpful in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.